I'm Holiday. I'm Taraday. I'm Independence Day. Oh, a microphony. And a phony at the mic. Get Whoa! Ah. <laughs> and now, on with the opera. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Play, Don. Would you welcome Mr. Warm? Picture it. <laughs> Sicily, 1912. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to an exciting and thrilling episode of Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs 2.0, where we cover all crime. I am, as always, your host, the Great White Snark, Scotty J. Seated across from me and on the other side of the country is the lovely and twisted Monica. God. My throat's a little sore. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it it's allergies. That, that was yeah, that was bad. Well, like I was saying before we turned on the mics, you know, it it's kind of bad when Mother Nature decides to give you all four seasons in a day. It has happened in our area too. So I, right. I, I just woke up this morning for work and um we've been having a tough time with the internet again at work. But um, I woke up this morning and there was there was actually ice on my windshield. We had a little bit of sky dandruff last night. No, hasn't happened here yet, though. Well, it, well, see, here's the funny thing: when I was a kid growing up here, we by now we would have snow, and I mean like two, three feet of snow. As I've gotten older, and as global warming has kind of kicked in. We don't get snow until like Christmas into New Year. And it's fake, right? <laughs> well, yeah, the global warming's like so fake, right? Oh yeah, it, it's all fake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but um, because usually when I was a kid, you know, by Christmas we'd have two, three feet of snow on the ground, or there would be a blizzard by my birthday in the following month. So, you know, I get a few days out of school now. Oh no, there's an Arctic chill coming in, a, a polar blast, and you know, we can't send the kids to school because they might freeze. You know what? Half of my generation froze walking six blocks to school. Yeah, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, even I, I told that to I told that to Amanda because they were talking about that polar vortex one year that we had that just like Kids couldn't go to school because, well, there's no heaters on the bus. I'm like, there's no heaters on the bus? bus? I yeah. Oh, no. God. It's called you bundle up and then you sweat. <laughs> no, right. You you bundle up like Randy on a Christmas story. You look like, yeah. a, tick. Uh-huh. You look like a tick that's about ready to explode. Yeah. But I told her, I was like, so when I was a kid, we didn't get, you know, it went below zero. We went to school. Uh-huh. Like, I, well, I'm like, to- I can't remember. I don't think I ever really went to it. Like, I mean, we go to below zero, maybe a couple, but I don't, it well, didn't happen right. enough that it was like, I remember, like, we'd still have to go to school. I thought we probably, we wouldn't have to go. Before. I grew up on the Great Plains, so. Well, yeah. Below, little- below zero was something we looked forward to every year. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I told her, like, we could, you know, we could have had AIDS cured by now, but nope. You know, little Timmy got, little Timmy froze to death on the way to school. We didn't find him until the spring. She's like, you you guys went to school? I'm like, Fuck, I walked to school. Snow drifts up to my chin, and I still walked to school. You didn't even, like... Uphill, both ways. Like, no, you wouldn't go the right... You were just hoping you were going in the right direction. <laughs> well, right, and in my town, um, certain streets were... Well, most of the streets, you know... And I'm sure it happened with you in Philly. You get that layer of ice under the snow. Oh, God, yes, yeah, the worst. So well, you had to watch out in case a car came around the corner and it, like uh-huh. lost control. Or even just the walking part, too. Yeah, right. I think it's, you know, snow and it's ice and you're like, yeah. you know, Mr. Brown comes around the corner, fishtails, takes out three kids and continues going to school. Uh huh. The hardiest of the kids just woke you know, blood pouring down his head. He just walks yes. into school. Oh, well, you made it. Who who didn't make it today? Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks. We've got a good one for you tonight. We've got probably one of the most famous 
I, I, can you call mm-hmm. it a hijacking missing person? Yeah, but also the news member. Oh yes. Oh, I'm always the one who has to remind you too. We're like, I, 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 you know, you're getting old. <laughs> yes, I am. I'm going to be 50 next month. Uh-huh. Th- thanks for the Nelson months. Ha ha. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I might actually find that and edit it into this episode. Yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah, it would. Now I've been following. I, I've been seeing stuff on this case you're going to mention. Um, the boy in the box over there in Philly. Yep. What? You gave like finally, a little. They well next week they're going to like say what his name, his actual name right. was. And I think all this, the genealogical DNA that they're doing now, which is how, you know, they caught the Golden State Killer. And right. Uh, they've been able to identify cases. some uh, Gacy victims that way. Yeah, exactly. They are, they finally got it with um, this boy who's, he's buried at the, I think the one, the cemetery we went to. The, oh, the, where uh, Holmes is. No, the, Holmes Holy Cross. This is, oh, the, the, the other one? Yeah, the... <sighs> The 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 one that was used in Rocky, yeah, that one. Laurel Hill, wait, West Laurel. I, nice, I like visiting that one. I I like to stop there when I'm in Philly and just take a look at the famous people there. But what yeah, what is basically how was how was he found? Or what, do you know anything was, about the? Uh, well, the case? I mean, it's, it's been a while, but oh, we um who. Sorry, my bad. Oh, see, I should have looked this, but that's what he's at. Oh, Ivy Hill okay. Cemetery. Sorry, my bad. But yeah, I always get those two confused because they both look alike and they're, you know, both pretty famous anyway. But um, he was found in a box. I believe it was from the Sears in Upper Darby. Okay. They were like Sears. Okay, but I know there was a Sears for years. In the Upper Darby, so of course, yay, Dalco and local connection for that, and they just they haven't, they were never able to see. You know, like there was like no information really about other than that. Right, he was murdered. That he was in on the box, and but yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm getting distracted by on the final grave, the description on First Susquehanna Road where it was found. They have it as SA instead of SU, so. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so now, but it's funny, like, I guess wrong choice of words, funny, but since it's a, basically a local case, you know, to me. Yeah. I forget how exactly famous it is because all these people from around the country that, you know, Facebook friends with posting about it. I'm like, you know about this? You know, well, like, I've been. Well, yeah, I mean, because you forget, like, you just you kind of forget. Like how famous then since it's been since it was February of 57. That he was oh, wow. Famous. So, yeah. Okay. I mean, but they said also, I think that they can still bring charges. So yeah, because there's no statute of limitation on murder. Yeah, but if the person's dead. But hopefully uh, that means the person isn't dead. Right. Well, you know, so. But yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting because then they were saying that the prominent Delco family, which hmm. like, which I was thinking DuPonts because of, you know, they were in right. town square. But they kind of wondered, like, some love child because if they were prominent, so how could they right. hide it? Because it wasn't right. a newborn either. It was, you know, he was, I think, about five, like three, maybe a little more than three, like the estimated age, but. Right. Just, um, I don't know. It, I mean, I've been get, seeing it on my news app, so I'm going to keep uh, keep an eye on it. Yeah. So, but yeah, so this is time, like, I wish my dad was still around because. Oh, he would have known about all it. Up and, Oh, yeah. Yeah, because that's what back in 98 when um, he had just been reburied at Ivy Hill. Mm. And that's why I saw his grave actually that month because they had a Halloween thing there. And But yeah, so my dad definitely would have been 
like waiting for this, you know, news next week. So hey, we'll you know come up with the right. the next episode. So now that we spend how much time <laughs> right about everything else. Okay, um minutes. Sorry. Yeah, that was oh that's fine. I mean this is this is a true crime case, you know. Yeah. Once more evidence becomes available, we'll share it with everybody. Yeah, because so it's I mean exciting, right? But it's definitely so as it almost kind of gives me hope for me, hopefully John Bonet one day I will figure out what happened with her too. So. It was her brother. But they say there's no the DNA doesn't match the family, so Raul, the groundskeeper. There we go. Okay, cool. That's solved here. You got, heard it here first, folks. I got right. That I solved it. I got right. I'm looking at my dragons and my my dragon statues and, and the tea leaves and all, right? Uh no, actually I, I have some pretty cool dragon statues my mom gave me, and a couple of them got like Oh my god, you missed I said tea, the tea leaves. You're reading yeah, right. the tea. Right, I'm reading the tea. I'm reading the tea leaves in my uh, glass of Coke here, you know. Yep. Okay. <laughs> so okay. Anyway. Uh to our case this week. We would you consider this is probably one of the most famous skyjacking missing person cases out there? The most famous. This is if there's like a, a list, yeah. he's number one. Yeah, it's this one. So this you know looking at this we could have done this as a thanksgiving episode but that would displace our cannibals yeah we we have a theme going here so <laughs> right you know right we do we're talking if you guys haven't guessed it right now we're doing mr db cooper I, every time i hear that name i think of a truck driver I think the first time I ever heard about him I was like in early elementary school too i think the first time i, I heard books. about it was uh the old Robert Stack uh, unsolved mystery. Oh yeah, uh huh. Robert Stack, that that man will make you piss your pants in the first openings of the of the show. Oh, oh the, you can solve this murder. Uh-huh. All right, the, the intros. Oh yeah. Dog. Oh God, don't watch oh. that. Dark. Okay, I, but- I I think yeah, right. Don't watch it. Don't watch Robert Stack in the dark, even if he's doing uh-huh. the Untouchables. Uh huh. <laughs> Okay, now for real. Sorry. (laughs) On on Thanksgiving Eve, November 24th, 1971, a man carrying a black attache case approached a flight counter of Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport. You already know it's going to be screwed up because we're in Portland. This is before the hipsters came in. Now, using cash, the man bought a one-way ticket on flight 305, a 30-minute trip to uh, seat seat. Well, it's called SeaTac, but it's a <clears throat> Seattle Tacoma International Airport. Now, on his ticket, he listed his name as Dan Cooper. Eyewitnesses described Cooper as a white male in his mid forties with dark hair and brown eyes, wearing a black or brown business suit, a white shirt, a thin black tie, a black raincoat, and brown shoes, looking like an average businessman. Carrying a brief, oh, I thought you were going to pop in for a moment. Yeah, sorry. Carrying a briefcase in a brown paper bag, which probably had a bottle of um, Ripple in it, Cooper boarded flight 305, a Boeing 727-100, and he took the seat in 18E in the last row in order to drink a bourbon and 7-Up. That's just so 70s. Oh, it is, man. It, well, it's kind of like that. Left. Uh, Do you ever watch Mad Men? Actually, no. Okay, Amanda That's watched 50s Mad anyway. Huh? Right? Was that like the fifties? Fifties and sixties, kind of. Okay. Kind of. So, and you know, okay. it, it's kind of like that leftover from that era. You know, the businessmen drink a bourbon straight or a bourbon okay. with Seven Up. Bourbon yeah. was a bourbon was a manly drink. And it was very early 70s, too. So, Oh, yeah. This is back when you could drink booze on an airplane. Good times. Good times. <laughs> now, with a crew of six and 37 passengers aboard, Flight 305 left Portland on schedule at 2.50 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. The, the, all this is going to be Pacific Standard Time. I don't, I'm not smart enough to do the uh, 
mental calculations here. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed a note to the flight attendant, Florence Schaffner, who was sitting in the jump seat directly behind Cooper. Now, you know, Florence was probably a beautiful looking woman and, you know, flight attendants back in the early days of aviation had those, you know, skimpy little outfits on. So this woman had probably been hit on a million times and she righteously assumed that this was a, you know, just a businessman giving her a phone number like, hey, when we land in Seattle, meet me in my hotel room. She dropped a note unopened into her purse. Now, Cooper leaned forward and whispered, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. And no, it wasn't a pickup line. She opened the note. In neat, all capital letters printed with a felt-tipped pen. God, that's so 70s. Cooper had written, Miss, I have a bomb in my briefcase and I want you to sit by me. Now, see, if you try that these days, you're going to get beat the f- you're, getting, you're just going to get beat up on a plane. Even the little old nun, two rolls over, going to jump over and beat you for the Lord. Now, she returned the note to Cooper, sat down as he requested, and quietly asked to see the bomb. God, he, he just, just one part of me wants to make so many innuendo jokes about this, and, and I'm, re- I'm refraining. I found their uniform from the early 70s. I'm so psyched. I'll, I'll post it on the Facebook page. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, and it is that, that kind of outfit, too. So, well, Cooper opened his briefcase, and Schaffner saw two rows of four red cylinders, which she assumed was dynamite. Attached to the cylinders was a wire and a large cylindrical battery. He closed the briefcase and told her his demands. She wrote a note with Cooper's demands and carried the note to the cockpit, which is now called the flight deck. God, I want to make so many jokes right now. And informed the flight crew of the situation. Captain Scott directed Schaffner to remain in the cockpit for the remainder of the flight and take notes of events as they unfolded. He then contacted Northwest Flight Operations in Minnesota and relayed the hijackers' demands. Cooper requests $200,000 in a knapsack by 5 p.m. He wants two front parachutes, two back parachutes. He wants the money in negotiable American currency. With Schaffner in the cockpit, flight attendant Tina Mucklow sat next to Cooper to act as a liaison between Cooper and the flight crew in the cockpit. I want to make so many jokes. I want to. I want to. Cooper then made an additional demand. Upon landing in Seattle, the fuel trucks must meet the plane and all passengers must remain seated while Mucklow brought the money aboard. After he had the money, said Cooper, he would release the passengers. The last items brought aboard would be the four parachutes. Captain William A. Scott informed Seattle-Tacoma Airport air traffic control of the situation and SeaTac ATC contacted local police and the FBI. The passengers were told their arrival in Seattle would be delayed because of a minor mechanical difficulty. I love that on airplanes. Yeah. It's like, now you're going to be thinking like everything. Donald Nyrop, the president of Northwest Orient, authorized payment of the ransom and ordered all employees to cooperate with the hijacker and comply with his demands. For approximately two hours, Flight 305 circled Puget Sound to give Seattle Police and the Federal Bureau of Investigation sufficient time to assemble Cooper's ransom money and parachutes and to mobilize emergency personnel. During the flight from Portland to Seattle, Cooper demanded flight attendant Mucklow remain by his side at all times. There's another joke there. Yeah, Mucklow I know. Said, I wanted to make one about the Mile High Club, but I'm, I'm resisting. Yeah. <laughs> Mucklow said Cooper appeared familiar with the local train. While looking out the window, Cooper remarked, looks like Tacoma down there as, the, air- <laughs> as the aircraft flew above it. 
Cooper also correctly noted McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive from Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Mucklow later described the hijacker's demeanor. Cooper was not nervous. He seemed rather nice, and he was not cruel or nasty. While the plane circled Seattle, Mucklow chatted with Cooper and asked why he picked Northwest Airlines to hijack. <laughs> well, I guess you got to talk about something, right? Right, but it's like, uh, why did you pick our plane and not like... Yeah, like, Delta. thanks, right? Yeah, really? <laughs> Southwestern's not doing much business. You could have hijacked them. Ooh, excuse me. Cooper replied, it's not because I have a grudge against your airlines. It's just because I have a grudge. <laughs> if everybody that had a grudge did this. Then we, like, <laughs> Hello, dude. Cooper then asked where Mucklow was from. And Mucklow said she was originally from Pennsylvania. Woohoo, shout out. But was living in Minneapolis at the time. Minnesota was very nice country, Cooper responded. It is. I got family up there. Never been. Mucklow then asked Cooper where he was from, but he became upset and refused to answer. Well, duh. Cooper then asked Mucklow if she smoked and offered her a cigarette. Another back when you could smoke on cigarettes. On, on planes. Right. God damn, I missed this. Well, I was a young yeah. kid. In the, I wasn't even born yet when this happened, but damn. Sounds like it was a fun time back then. Yeah, it was. And when you had the allergies, that happened to me on a flight. You know, $5.00. concert tickets well that part but yeah the smoking on the plane the like flying to moscow or yeah that was real real fun like being stuck behind the guy smoking my eyes oh okay anyway mucklow said she had quit but accepted the cigarette from cooper so yeah okay fbi records note cooper briefly spoke to an identified passenger while the plane maintained its holding pattern over seattle in his interview with FBI agents, passenger George Ogood Labassonier said he visited the restroom directly behind Cooper on several occasions. After one restroom visit, Labassonier, he could have just been Smith, said his path to his sea was blocked by a passenger wearing a cowboy hat questioning Mucklow about the alleged mechanical issue with the aircraft. Ah, Labassonier said Cooper was initially amused by the interaction, then became irritated and told the man to return to his seat. But the cowboy ignored Cooper and continued to question Mucklow. He's probably thinking, like, who the hell are you, dude? <laughs> Labassonier claimed he eventually persuaded the cowboy to return to his seat. Dude, you're growing his old. Man, I bet the guy was Chuck Norris. Uh-huh. Why didn't you kung fu kick him, Chuck? Yeah. Mucklow's for... <laughs> oh that's sorry yeah Ugh, i just kept i was so in the i was in the groove so right yeah. i mean seriously though you got a man dressed as a cowboy he's probably from texas he's probably packing heat oh wait you couldn't, couldn't yeah carry, back then right yeah. no no you couldn't carry uh weapons yeah. on a plane back then unless he was the air marshal well yeah true still should have beat his ass man uh-huh now mucklow's version of the interaction differed from lab Labasonniers. Mucklow said a passenger approached her and asked for a sports magazine to read because he was bored. And I mean, let's be honest, the magazines on airplanes have kind of gone down in quality since the 70s. Uh, since the 90s, they've gone downhill. But I have to say, the options now for movies, you can watch the movies on your phone. Oh my God. I went to LA. Watched the original Scream. Oh, nice. On the way back, I watched The Eyes of Tammy Faye. So, yes. Oh, nice. Definitely gone up. So, that part's awesome. I remember where I think I was flying on one of my flights in the Navy. I think it was going over to Europe. I watched Father of the Bride. No, I think that happened on uh, when I was in the Med, uh, flying from Spain to Greece. On the way over, I watched. Far and away with uh, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman about the Irish farmers in the land rush. Yeah, I saw that in the theater because I'm old enough to do. And um, I think on the way back, I watched uh, Father of the Bride with Steve Martin. Oh, yeah. But that was on the big screen. That was that was on the personal screens yet because it was still. No, we we still had the the screen. Yeah. It was the screens Um, that were like above everybody. everybody Flying back, I took a commercial flight. To Italy, so we watched Father of the Bride then. 
Okay, but everybody had to watch. It was like the one yeah. screen that was, yeah. yeah. Okay. Or take a nap, whatever you chose to do. Okay, now Mucklow and the passenger moved to an area directly behind Cooper where she and the passenger looked for magazines. The passenger took a copy of the New Yorker and returned to his seat. When she returned to sit with Cooper, he said, if that is a sky marshal, I don't want any more of that. Despite his brief interaction with Cooper, the cowboy was not interviewed by the FBI, and to this day, he was never identified. Yeah, that was a sky marshal. I mean, yeah. like, wouldn't that be a regular part? I mean, like, they've identified, you know, all that. Well, that- right. They would have identified him. Yeah. But if, if he was a sky marshal, yeah, they probably would have kept him quiet. Yeah, so that tells me now that that was actually a sky marshal. And good job, really. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, it's just... I'm hoping that I can find enough information on this, on the case I was telling you about that I listened to on Small Town Murder. Because the FBI fucked that one up. Oh, sorry. That is true, so... (laughs) Right. Now, the (laughs) FBI used several banks in the Seattle area to assemble the ransom. The money, 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, most of which had serial numbers beginning with L which indicating insurance by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco was photographed on microfilm by the FBI. Smart maneuver on this. Cooper rejected the military issue parachutes offered by McCord Air Force personnel and demanded four civilian parachutes, which manually operated ripcords. Seattle police obtained the two front, two front parachutes from the local skydiving school and two back parachutes from a local stunt pilot at approximately 524 captain scott was informed the parachutes had been delivered to the airport and notified cooper that they would soon be landing uh attention crazy man in the back with the bomb we will be landing soon at 546 flight 305 landed at seattle tacoma airport scott asked cooper's permission and cooper agreed to park the aircraft on a partially lit runway away from the main terminal. Smart maneuver. That way you can't see the FBI agents coming up, you know, take you out. Cooper demanded only one representative of the airline could approach the plane with the parachutes of money, and the only entrance and exit would be through the aircraft's front door through the mobile air stairs. Yeah. For those of you to remember, that they were the, the stairs that they just wheeled up to the plane. Well, I hate to say it too, but um, oh god, I'm gonna like you've been on one, actually. Yeah, I have. Um, we went that that same trip, we went to Moscow, we landed in Switzerland. Oh, nice. I was gonna say today with or last couple of days with yeah, you know, William and Kate. Yeah, of course, they used a regular plane, but then they took those stairs out for them so oh okay well, yeah because they got to come out and wave at everybody you can't yeah. do that on those those tubes that they offer now. <laughs> yeah, right there. I, i've tried that coming in when i had to go down to raleigh to get my daughter i, I tried waving on that too but you know no one saw me uh. <laughs> alex just gave me a look like why dad with the passengers remaining seated a ground crew attached a mobile staircase now Per his directive, Mucklow exited the aircraft through the front door and retrieved the ransom money. When she returned, she carried the money bag past to see the passengers to Cooper, who was again seated in the last row. He then agreed to release the passengers. As the passengers debarked, he inspected the money. In an attempt to break the tension, she jokingly asked Cooper if she could have some of the money. Well, he agreed, handed her a packet of bills, and she immediately returned the money and explained accepting gratuities was against company policy. Yeah, we kept them and sold them now. How much time have been like? Oh, God, yeah. Bye. <laughs> right. Now, she said Cooper had tried to tip her and the other two flight attendants earlier in a flight with money from his own pocket, but they had declined citing the company policy. With the passengers safely debarked, only Cooper and the six crew members were made aboard Flight 305. In accordance with his demands, Mucklow made three trips outside the aircraft to retrieve the parachutes. She brought them to Cooper in the rear of the plane. Now, while she brought aboard the parachutes, 
Schaffner asked Cooper if she could retrieve her purse stored in a compartment behind his seat. He agreed and told her, I won't bite you. That cost extra. I I tried to I tried to hold it in. Like it was just fighting. (laughs) I tried to hold it in, folks. Trust me. Flight attendant Alice Hancock. Oh wait, wrong one. That's Hitchcock. She's probably related to Herbie. Then asked Cooper if the flight attendants could leave, to which he replied, "Whatever, whatever you girls would like." So Hancock and Schaffner depart. I'd have been gone so fast, you it would have been like the Roadrunner, clouded dust. You know, bye. When Mucklow brought the final parachute to Cooper, she gave him printed instructions for using the parachutes. But he said he didn't need them. Nah, I've seen enough war pictures. I know what I'm doing. The problem with the refueling process caused a delay, so a second truck and then a third was brought to the aircraft to complete the refueling. During the delay, Mucklow said Cooper complained the money was delivered in a cloth bag instead of a knapsack, as he directed. And he now had to improvise a new way to transport the money. Oh, man. I hate when they mess up my plans. Are you right? Using a pocket knife, Cooper cut the canopy from one of the reserve parachutes and stuffed some of the money into the empty parachute bag. An FAA official requested a face-to-face meeting with Cooper aboard the aircraft, but Cooper denied the request. Cooper became impatient, saying, this shouldn't take so long, and let's get the show on the road. Let's put on a show. Cooper then gave the cockpit crew his flight plan and directives, a southeast course toward Mexico City at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft, approximately 100 knots, 185 kilometers an hour, 115 miles per hour, and a maximum 10,000. That doesn't seem like it's a, a, it's a, well, I mean, it's probably fast enough for an airplane, but, you know, it still doesn't seem like it's, it's fast enough. Yeah. They're 3,000 meter altitude. Cooper also specified the landing gear must remain deployed, the wing flaps must be lowered 15 degrees, and the cabin must remain unpressurized. Okay, with all this information that he's given him, um, why don't you just fly? Right, and he fly the plane, but it sounds to me like he's very familiar with airplanes. Yeah, because if I try to do it, I'd be like, um, um, know what to do now? They've done everything, so. Uh, can you cruise at my chance is running? <laughs> Welcome to Dude Airlines. We're cruising the altitude of 500 feet. I'd go higher, but I don't want to get lost, so we're just going to follow the highway. Yeah, exactly. First officer William J. Radizak informed Cooper the flight configuration Cooper had specified limited the aircraft's range to approximately 1,000 miles, 1,600 kilometers. So a second refueling would be necessary before entering Mexico. Cooper and the crew discussed options and agreed on Reno Tahoe International Airport as the refueling oh, stop. They went off the gamble. <laughs> Cooper further directed the aircraft take off with the rear exit door open and its air stair extended. Northwest Home Office objected. Leaving the aft staircase deployed during takeoff was unsafe. Well, that should have been like the one, like, hello, Captain. Oh, uh, yeah, that, that's the, the back ramp where they... Um, yeah. Yeah. Cooper countered the procedure was safe, saying it can be done. Do it. But Cooper did not argue the point and said he would lower the staircase once they were airborne. Oh yeah, because that sounds like super easy to do anyway. So, well, I mean, if obviously, familiar, if you're but, familiar with it, yeah, it is. Okay, show off. <laughs> Cooper, I'm like I'm just trying to imagine like all the air pressure, you know, everything. Trying to well, if you're, um, I had. In in one of my science classes I took in my undergrad, we have 60 miles of breathable air between the ground and the sky. Yeah. I mean, not the breathable. I mean, just the the pressure. Right. Uh, 10,000 feet. I don't think you have to pressurize it that much. Uh Uh-huh. I meant just trying to open with the the wind speed and trying to push. Right. I mean, you know, shit. 
I never took physics, so I'm like <laughs> I, I'm not taking physics either. I'm just going off of everything that I've I've seen on movies. Yeah. Which is totally true, right? But well, I've also seen a few documentaries on on Cooper. So yeah, this stuff is possible. Well, yeah, I mean obviously because he got away with it, but you know, yeah, he did. Just He's living it up in Cabo, man. Uh-huh. So Cooper demanded Mucklow remain aboard to assist the operation. At approximately 7.40 p.m., Flight 305 took off with only Cooper, Mucklow, Captain Scott, First Officer Radizak, and Flight Engineer Harold E. Anderson aboard the aircraft. Two F-106 fighters Ooh. from McCord Air Force Base and a Lockheed T-33 trainer diverted from an unrelated Air National Guard mission followed the 727. All three jets maintained S-flight patterns to stay behind the slow-moving 727 and out of Cooper's view. Oh, man. You got, some, you got some good fighters. You know, the uh, the F-106, that's a good fighter. And a Lockheed? Yeah. Ooh, man. Take that fucker down. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know your mom listens. This is why I'm really trying hard not to, not to like, blurt out what I normally yeah. would. But you're like, hi, shout out to, you know. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> After takeoff, Cooper told Mucklow to lower the aft staircase. Mucklow told Cooper and the flight crew she feared being sucked out of the aircraft. Yeah, I've been the same. The flight crew suggested Mucklow come to the cockpit and retrieve an emergency rope with which she could tie herself to a seat. Cooper rejected the suggestion, stating he didn't want Mucklow going up front or the flight crew coming back to the cabin. I'd be like, Will do. Yeah. Mucklow right. continued to express her fear to Cooper and asked him to cut some cord from one of the parachutes to create a safety line for her. <coughs> Sorry again. Cooper then told Mucklow he would lower the stairs himself. I'd be like, darn right you are. Instructed <laughs> Mucklow to go to the cockpit to close the curtain partition, separating the cooch and first class sections, and not to return. Yeah, you know, for empty first class, I'd have been up there just. Oh, these sheets are so comfy. Uh-huh. Um, even back then, I bet the, oh, yeah, the class. second class or whatever, probably like the first class. Like, um, you know? Right. I'd been like, uh, stewardess, my champagne is a little warm. Can you please um, chill it a little bit? I want some caviar. Before she left, she begged Cooper, please, please take the bomb with you. He responded he would either disarm the bomb or take it with him. Don't worry, baby. Gotta just... Mm, the bomb's coming with me. And then he kissed her, right? <laughs> right. You know that, that dramatic pose right there yeah. in uh, all the movies where he like pulls her clothes, lays one on her. Don't worry, baby. The bomb's coming uh-huh. with me. <laughs> As she walked to the cockpit and turned to close the curtain partition... She saw Cooper standing in the aisle, tying what appeared to be the money bag around his waist. E.B. Cooper, inventor of the fanny pack. From the moment of takeoff to when Mucklow entered the cockpit, only four to five minutes had elapsed. For the rest of the flight to Reno, Mucklow remained in the cockpit. Mucklow was the last person to see the hijacker. Or was she? You're right. The cowboy was hiding in the bathroom. Hey, y'all, I just took me a mean one. It's going to clog up the toilet there for a little bit. I should not have that Frito chili pie. At approximately 8 p.m., a cockpit warning light flashed indicating the aft staircase had been activated. The pilot used the intercom to ask Cooper if he needed assistance, but Cooper's last message was a one-word reply. No. Suddenly, the crew's ears popped. The cabin air pressure had dropped because the door was open. At approximately 8.13 p.m., the craft's tail section suddenly pitched forward, forcing the pilots to trim and return the craft to level flight. In his interview with the FBI, co-pilot Bill Radizak said the sudden upward pitch occurred while the flight was near the suburbs north of Portland. With the cabin door open and the staircase deployed, the flight crew remained in the cockpit, but were now unsure if Cooper was still aboard. 
Mucklow used the cabin intercom to inform Cooper that they were approaching Reno and he needed to raise the stairs so the plane could land safely. Mucklow repeated the request as the pilots made the final approach to land, but neither she nor the flight crew received a reply from the hijacker. At 11.02 p.m., with the staircase still deployed, Flight 305 landed at Reho, Reno Tahoe International Airport, just in time to get over to Vegas and see uh, the Rat Pack perform. FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff deputies, Reno 911, and the Reno police established a perimeter around the aircraft, but fearing that the hijacker and the bomb were still aboard, well, they didn't approach the plane. Captain Scott searched the cabin, confirmed Cooper was no longer aboard, and after a 30-minute search, an FBI bomb squad declared the cabin safe. In addition to 66 latent fingerprints aboard the airliner, FBI agents recovered Cooper's black clip-on tie, tie clip, and two of the four parachutes, one of which had been opened and had two shroud lines cut from the canopy. FBI agents interviewed eyewitnesses in Portland, Seattle, and Reno, and developed a series of composite sketches. Sorry. Local police and FBI agents immediately began questioning possible suspects. Acting on the possibility the hijacker may have used as a real name, are the same alias in the previous crime. Portland police discovered and interviewed a Portland citizen named D.B. Cooper. Bummer for him. The Portland had a minor police record, but was quickly eliminated as a suspect. How would you like to have been that guy? Yeah, right. Wake up one morning, next thing you know, the police are kicking in your door, guns. What the hell, man? This is just a parking ticket. (laughs) In his rush to meet a deadline, reporter James Long confused the Portland Cooper, with the synonym used by the hijacker. United Press International Wire Service reporter Clyde Jabin republished Long's error and his other media sources repeated the name. D.B. Cooper became the hijacker's synonym. No, synonym. Oh, God, my throat's in. Due to the number of variables and parameters, precisely defining the area to search was difficult. The jet's airspeed estimates varied. The environmental conditions along the flight path varied with the aircraft's location and altitude. And only Cooper knew how long he stayed in freefall before pulling his ripcord. The Air Force F-106 pilots neither saw anyone jumping from the airliner, nor did their radar detect the deployed parachute. Moreover, a black-clad individual jumping into the moonless night would be difficult to see, duh, mm-hmm. especially given the limited visibility, cloud cover, and lack of ground lighting. The T-33 pilots did not make visual contact with the 727. On December 6, 1971, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover approved... We're probably wearing a nice dress and sensible pumps. Yep. Approved the use of an Air Force SR-71 Blackbird to graph Flight 305's flight path and to locate the items Cooper carried during his jump. The SR-71 made five flights to retrace Flight 305's route, but due to poor visibility, again, the photography attempts were unsuccessful. Man, are you, you're calling in a Blackbird. At, at the time, the Blackbird was like the most state-of-the-art stealth plane we had. And if you want, you could go to the uh, Air Force Museum in Dayton, Ohio, and see a Blackbird on display. Cool. Yeah. uh, The one year that Amanda and I took the kids on an Ohio tour, we stopped there. And Alex and I were looking at the Blackbird and goes, hey, Dad, is this the same plane they used for the X-Men? I'm like, yeah, they they based their Blackbird off of an SR-71. In an experimental recreation flying the same aircraft used in the hijacking in the same flight configuration, FBI agents pushed a 200-pound sled out of the open air stair and were able to reproduce the upward motion of the tail section and a brief change in cabin pressure described by the flight crew at 8.13 p.m. Initial extrapolations placed Cooper's landing zone within an area Sorry, on the south. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Southernmost outreach of Mount St. Helens, a few miles southeast of Ariel, Washington, 
near Lake Merwin, an artificial lake formed by a dam on the Lewis River. Search efforts focused on Clark and Cowlitz counties, encompassing the terrain immediately south and north, respectively, of the Lewis River in southwest Washington. Probably named after uh, Meriwether Lewis. FBI agents and sheriff's deputies searched large areas of the heavily wooded terrain on foot and by helicopter. Door-to-door searches of local farmhouses were also carried out. Other search parties ran patrol boats along Lake Merwin and Yale Lake, the reservoir immediately to its east. Neither Cooper nor any of the equipment presumably carried was found. Using fixed-winged aircraft and helicopters from the Oregon Army National Guard, because, you know, National Guard really has nothing better to do than sit around and, you know, play weekend warrior. <laughs> the FBI coordinated, not that I'm knocking the, the National Guard, some of my friends were National Guardsmen. The FBI coordinated an aerial search along the entire flight path. Known as Victor 23 in U.S. aviation terminology, but Vector 23 in most Cooper literature. Now, they followed the path from Seattle to Reno. Now, although numerous broken treetops and several pieces of plastic and other objects resembling parachute canopies were sighted and investigated, nothing relevant to the hijacking was found. Shortly after the spring thaw in early 1972, when a young man's heart turns to fancy, Teams of FBI agents aided by some 200 United States Army soldiers from Fort Lewis, along with United States Air Force personnel, National Guardsmen, and civilian volunteers, conducted another thorough ground search of Clark and Cowlitz counties for 18 days in March, and then another 18 days in April. The Electronic Explorations Company, a marine salvage firm, used a submarine search to 200-foot depths of Lake Merwin, Two local women stumbled upon a skeleton in an abandoned structure in Clark County, but it was later identified as the remains of Barbara Ann Derry, a teenage girl who had been abducted and murdered several weeks before. Nice try. Nice try, Agnes Kravitz. Ultimately, the extensive search and recovery operation uncovered no significant material evidence related to the hijacking. Based on early computer projections produced for the FBI, Cooper's drop zone was first estimated to be between Ariel Dam to the north and the town of Battleground, Washington to the south. In March of 72, the FBI concluded their original calculations were incorrect after a joint investigation with the Northwest Orient Airlines and the Air Force determined that Cooper probably jumped over the town of La Center, Washington. In 2019, the FBI released a report indicating that approximately three hours after Cooper jumped, a burglary was reported at a small grocery store near Heisen, Washington, an unincorporated community located within the calculated drop zone that Northwest Airlines presented to the FBI. The burglar was noted by the FBI to have taken only survival items such as beef jerky and gloves. Well, you know, you need beef jerky out there in the woods. Uh-huh. A month after the hijacking, the FBI distributed lists of the ransom serial numbers to financial institutions, casinos, racetracks, and other businesses that routinely conducted large cash transactions and to law enforcement agencies around the world. Northwest Orient offered a reward of 15% of the recovered money to a maximum of $25,000. In early 1972, U.S. Attorney General John N. Mitchell, woohoo, Watergate, released the serial numbers to the general public. Two men used counterfeit $20 bills printed with Cooper serial numbers to swindle $30,000 from a Newsweek reporter named Carl Fleming in exchange for an interview with a man they falsely claimed was a hijacker. In early 1973, with the ransom money still missing, the Oregon Journal republished the serial numbers and offered $1,000 to the first person to turn in a ransom bill to the newspaper or any FBI field office. In Seattle, the Post Intelligencer made a similar offer with a $5,000 reward. The offers remained in effect until Thanksgiving 1974, and though there were several near matches, no genuine bills were found. In 1975, 
Northwest Orient's insurer, Global Indemnity Company, comply with an order from the Minnesota Supreme Court and pay the airline's $180,000 claim on the ransom money. Later analysis indicated that the original landing zone estimate was inaccurate. Captain Scott, who was flying the aircraft manually because of Cooper's speed and altitude demands, later determined his flight path was farther east than initially assumed. Additional data from a variety of sources, in particular Continental Airlines pilot Tom Bohan, who was flying four minutes behind Flight 305, indicated the wind direction factored into drop zone calculations had been wrong, possibly by as much as 80 degrees. This and other supplemental data suggested the actual drop zone was south-southeast of the original estimate in the drainage area of the Washougal River. FBI agent Ralph Himmelsbach wrote, I have to confess, if I was going to look for Cooper, I would head for the Washougal. The Washougal Valley and its surroundings have been searched repeatedly in subsequent years. To date, no discoveries traceable to the hijacking have been reported. Some investigators have speculated that the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens could have obliterated any remaining physical clues. Yeah, I I agree with yeah. that. Hello, Captain Obvious. Well, no, I mean, I remember when it, when it exploded because ash fell out here. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. It's like, obviously, you know. Well, right, like, and I mean, with the... If I remember how bad the 80s eruption was, I mean, there was. I remember hearing a story about this old fellow lived up there in the mountains all his life. It was before I was born. So. Right. <laughs> but um, there was this old fellow who lived up there in the mountains, and, and the rangers and everyone was like, you know, evacuating. This guy's like, nope, I uh, yeah. lived here all my life. I'm going to stay, stay in my house. Well, he did. Um, the the flow came down, took out the house, took the old man with it, and his animals. And like the big right, I don't think they ever found them. Yeah, but I do think that if there was any evidence left over in that area, Mount St. Helens wiped it out. Well, yeah, that's why I said hello, Captain Obvious. You know, it's like right. Uh. <laughs> On July eighth, twenty sixteen, the FBI announced active investigation of the Cooper case was suspended citing the need to focus investigative resources and manpower on other issues of higher and more urgent priority. God, if we only knew what we know now. Local field offices would continue to accept any legitimate physical evidence related specifically to the parachutes or to the ransom money that may emerge in the future. The 66-volume case file compiled over the 45-year course of the investigation will be preserved for historical purposes at the FBI headquarters in D.C., and I have passed the building. Did we, we, I just, we pass it together, right? I think we might. I think we passed it together, <laughs> but when I was out there in July with uh, Alex and Susie, we passed it. Yeah, I think and, I know we, I, we, we did go past the HUD building. Right. I remember that, definitely. We, might, right, we I, passed housing and urban development. Yeah, but yeah, we might have on the FBI because I know I've obviously I stamped a picture of the FBI building and I sent it to my brother Jeremy and I went I wonder oh. if I can go in and look <laughs> at the old man's case <laughs> he's like dude I would uh, yeah right seriously <laughs> um, hello Mr. FBI agent um, I'd like to take a look at your file on Steve Fenton Oh, I'm his son. I just want to make sure you know it's up to date. I can fill in anything. Swarm, swarm, swarm. Right. That's a, that'd be my problem. They'd swarm me and you know, like I'd spend time in the federal detention center. It, it's going to be preserved uh, for historical purposes at the headquarters and on the FBI website, children. All the evidence is open to the public. The crime remains the only unsolved case of air piracy in commercial aviation history. On February 10th, 1980, eight-year-old Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at the beachfront known as Tina, Tina Bar, about nine miles down the street from Vancouver, Washington, and 20 miles southwest of Ariel. He uncovered three packets of the ransom cash totaling $5,800 as he raked the Sandy River Bank to build a campfire. 
Well, the bills had disintegrated from lengthy exposure to the elements, but were still bundled in rubber bands. FBI technicians confirmed that the money was indeed a portion of the ransom. Two packets of the $120 bills each and a third packet of 90, a third packet of 90, all arranged in the same order as when given to Cooper. Two packets of 100, oh, 120, okay. I was thinking $100 and 20s. I was like, that's not much. The discovery launched several new rounds of conjecture and ultimately raised more questions than it answered. Initial statements by investigators and scientific consultants were founded on the assumption the bundled bills washed freely into the Columbia River from one of its many connecting tributaries. An Army Corps of Engineer hydrologist noted the bills had disintegrated in a rounded fashion and were matted together, indicating they had been deposited by river action, as opposed to having been deliberately buried. The conclusion, if correct, supported the opinion that Cooper had not landed near Lake Marin, nor any tributary of the Lewis River, which feeds into the Columbia well downstream from Tina Bar. Tina Bar is um, Tina Farr's more funny cousin. <laughs> oh, Tina Fay. God damn it. I'm, I'm, I'm not funny today. I'm like, uh, somebody else. I don't know about that. Right. I, I tried to, I tried to stick a joke and it didn't work. Yeah. And it went. <laughs> right. You know, here's the point. There's Scott over in left field waving at people. It also lent credence to the supplemental speculation the drop zone was near the Washougal River, which merges with the Columbia upstream from the discovery site. The free-floating hypothesis presented difficulties. It did not explain the 10 bills missing from one packet, nor was there a logical reason the three packets would have remained together after separating from the rest of the money. Physical evidence was incompatible with the geological evidence. Himmelsbach wrote free-floating bundles would have washed up on the bank within a couple of years of the hijacking. Otherwise, the rubber bands would have long since deteriorated. Geological evidence suggested the bills arrived at Tina Bar after 74, the year of a Corps of Engineers dredging operation on that stretch of the river. Geologist Leonard Palmer of the Portland State University found two distinct layers of sand and sediment between the clay deposits on the riverbank by the dredging and the sand layer in which the bills were buried, indicating that the bills arrived long after dredging had been completed. In late 2020, analysis of diatoms found on the bills suggests the bundles found at Tina Bar were not submerged in the river or buried dry at the time of the hijacking in November 1971. Only diatoms that bloomed during springtime were found. Placing the date range that the money entered the water at least several months after the hijacking. In 1986, after protracted negotiations, the recovered bills were divided equally between Ingram and Northwest Orient's insurer, Global Royal Globe Insurance. The FBI retained 14 examples as evidence. Ingram sold 15 of his bills at auction in 2008 for about $37,000. I remember that. The Columbia River ransom money remains the only confirmed physical evidence from the hijacking found outside the aircraft. During the hijacking, Cooper demanded and received two main chutes and two reserve chutes. The two reserve front chutes came from a local skydiving school and the two main back chutes were supplied by a local pilot, Norman Hayden. Earl Cossey, the parachute rigger who packed all four parachutes, brought to Cooper described the two main chutes as emergency bailout chutes, as opposed to sporting parachutes that skydivers would use. Cassie further described the main chutes as being like military chutes because they were rigged to open immediately upon the ripcord being pulled and were incapable of being steered. When the plane landed in Reno, FBI agents discovered two parachutes that Cooper left behind, one reserve front chute and one main back chute. The reserve chute had been opened and three shroud lines had been cut out, but the main chute left behind was still intact. The unused main chute was described by FBI agents as a model NB6 or Navy Backpack 6 
and is on display at the Washington State Historical Society Museum. Road trip. Yep. One of the two reserve shoots that Cooper was given was an unusable training shoot intended only to be used for classroom demonstrations. All right, class, this is how you properly put on your shoot. Now, as you... I, I could just see the teacher standing up on the desk, showing them how to how to jump off and pull the cord and everything. According to Cossey, the severe the reserve chute had a canopy inside of it that was sewn together so that skydiving students could get the feel of pulling a ripcord on a packed parachute without the canopy actually deploying. This non-functional reserve parachute was not found in the aircraft when it landed in Reno leading FBI agents to speculate that Cooper was not an experienced parachutist because someone with experience would have realized the reserve chute was a dummy chute. Makes sense. However, within days of the hijacking, it was revealed that neither of the parachutes, parachute harnesses Cooper was given had the necessary D-rings required to attach reserve parachutes. Although Cooper lacked the ability to attach this dummy chute to his main harness, as a reserve, it was not found in the plane, so what he did with it is unknown. Cossey speculated that Cooper removed the sewn okay. Cossey speculated that Cooper removed the sewn together canopy and used the empty empty reserve container as an extra money bag. Tina Mucklow provided testimony that was in line with this speculation, saying that she recalled Cooper attempting to pack money inside a parachute container. In November of 1978, a deer hunter found a 727's instruction placard for lowering the aft air stair. The placard was found near a logging road about 13 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington, north of Lake Merwin, but within Flight 305's basic flight pattern. And to this day, nobody knows who D.B. Cooper was. Nobody knows what happened to the money. He has never been caught, although speculation has run rampant. Well, I won't say run rampant, but I mean, just from this, my guess is he was someone familiar with airplanes. Well, yeah. You know, he, he could have been a mechanic or something, but he he knew what altitude, what speed. Yeah, this could work. Yeah. He, uh -huh. he knew airplanes, but the fact of, okay, who is he? Where is he? Still, now I had heard one story that uh, on one of the many documentaries I watched on D.B. Cooper, that there was a guy, had a house, Washington, I, I think they said Washington State or somewhere. And he wanted to, you know, wanted to, do something he needed money for something guy walked into the woods something came back with the appropriate amount of money and no one asked any questions but if it was the cooper money people had the serial numbers yeah so i don't know i mean my guess is this man this man jumped he survived and he made it down to cabo and Drinking Mai Tais on the beach with, um, I'm trying to think of the guy from Office Space. Yeah, I was going to say, you can tell. Yeah. And I said, no salt, no salt on the glass. Uh -huh. Milton. Milton. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh -huh. I can burn this place down. I, I can do it too. Now, what's funny is the guy who played Milton, great, great character actor by the name of Stephen yeah. Root. Uh, yeah, he, he did the voice of Bill Dotrieve on King of the Hill. He's like others. Yeah, he's just oh, he, he's, a, he's a great character actor. But you know, mm -hmm. yeah, when I found out he did the voice voice of Bill Dotrieve, I'm like, yeah, I can see it. Yeah, <laughs> but that is DB Cooper, folks. And if, well, if, if he made it, he's probably dead by now. It's like, well, if he was thirty, <coughs> that's gonna be like in his eighties. But with this, like, yeah, you know, but like, 
mean, but everybody looks so much older back then too. Oh God, yeah. The picture. So yeah, he, could, he was probably like ten or something. <laughs> He's probably in his mid twenties, and he looked like fifty. Yeah. Uh huh. Because I've seen. I mean, we've all seen the composite sketches. You know, the, the balding spot, the glasses. You know. Yeah. Uh huh. I mean, chances are he he lived to a ripe old age, or that the tree cover was so bad he died in the trees, you know. Yeah, and then just kind of got eaten up by, you know. Right, you know, the, 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 yeah. uh-huh. the animals got him, or he became Ted Bundy and he fried later. Yep. <laughs> well, I mean, they happened in the same area, but I mean, he yeah, happened well, to... actually bring it up, though, that Ted Bundy was him or something. I remember hearing something um, about that, but the problem is... Yeah. is Ted was looking too good to, to be D.B. Cooper. Yeah, I honestly, I don't think and that at all. But yeah. D.B. Cooper was 70, what we say, 71? Yeah. 71, Bundy started killing later, supposedly. Yeah. Uh-huh. So hopefully, I don't know, you don't hear, like, James in the background. I can hear him, you know, I'm not sure if it's going to get picked up or not. I don't know. It's, I don't know, but about something. So I, you know, I don't know. I, I'd like to think that one part of me thinks that he might have died in the treetops. Yeah. Another part of me thinks that he escaped and went somewhere where there's no extradition <laughs> law. And well, honestly, I didn't know all that about the parachutes, like how basically they were, you know, like practice ones that they weren't right. Know, they weren't like actually, yeah. Yeah, because I like when I would read about like oh, the parachutes didn't open up, or he was quite. I always thought they were fully functioning parachutes that you could jump out and right. Not they, they not that they were practice ones for you know a, on the gave ground. A, gave him a couple dummy ones, like here you go, dummy. Yeah, so that makes me believe a little bit even more that he yeah, just he, you know tried to open up and went push right into the trees yeah got splattered in the treetops yeah but even the, i mean like they said he jumped at night he couldn't see him uh-huh you know we also mean for that he probably it would have been harder for him to see the trees too right fast coming up and right so i mean it, good chance that he hit hit a he hit a tree and <coughs> didn't walk started. away from it yeah uh-huh all right, folks, we're going to wrap this one up. If you're looking for us, the best chance you can find us is Spotify. Spotify for all your music and podcast needs. Um, find us on the Facebook page. Hey, you know, we're, we're pretty chatty uh, there. See a picture of a Northwest Orient Airlines stewardess from the early 70s. <laughs> right. You know, um, that's about all I can think of. Um, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Just, I'm still trying to get us on Apple, so you know, gotta get a podcast, uh, yeah. pod, iPod fixed. God damn it! Might do that for my birthday next month. Yay! <laughs> all right, folks. For killers, cults, and nut jobs, I'm Scotty J. Say good night, Monica. Good night, Monica.